Well, good morning. Today is the fourth Sunday of Lent, which means we are now officially past the halfway point to Easter. And this is good news. Uh, for this reason, the church historically called today Laetere Sunday, which comes from a word that means rejoice. Rejoice because we are halfway through the wilderness. It's not the full-on Easter joy, but it's the joy of anticipation. It's the beginning of a countdown. Now, liturgically, Laetere Sunday used to be celebrated when the priests would change out their purple vestments for pink ones. We don't do that here. I didn't even know that was a thing until this week. Um, thank you, Google. Because pink as a liturgical color has virtually gone out of fashion everywhere, except in one place, our Advent wreath. On the third Sunday of Advent, which is the halfway point through our other penitential season, we exchange purple for pink in the candles. For just a moment, we lighten our penitential darkness with something brighter. It's not the brilliant white of Christmas or Easter, but it's a foretaste. Now, what's the point of this? Well, it's a bit like how I felt earlier this month when I looked out the window at my favorite tree in our yard, which is a dogwood tree, and I saw that it was beginning to bud. It's still too cold to have the windows open. Uh, it still feels more like winter than spring, right? But I can look through the window and I can see signs that the season is turning. I can see proof that new life is coming. Now, these little signs of hope these flashes of color and warmth and of rejoicing, they're very important to notice and acknowledge because Lent is a wilderness season. And in the middle of the wilderness, it's easy to get discouraged, to feel disoriented or even forgotten. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you are in the middle of a very long Lent that didn't start with Ash Wednesday and doesn't seem like it will lift by Easter. And to some extent, brothers and sisters, that's true for all of us. Because to some extent, Lent is just a microcosm of the whole Christian life. Right? Because it's a journey through the wilderness of a world that is still waiting to be redeemed. It's hopeful, but it's hard. You know what I mean? We're people of resurrection, so in a way, for us, every day is Easter. But we're also people of the cross who live every day in Lent. And this can be exhausting. So today, at the halfway point of our liturgical Lent, we are given Psalm 23, one of the most comforting, joy-filled, and hopeful prayers in all of Scripture. And because it's such a familiar psalm, even if you've never been to church in your entire life, you've probably heard Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Because it's so familiar, it can be hard to pay close attention to Psalm 23, but that's what we're gonna to do today. And when you listen to it closely, what you hear in these words is the prayer of a pilgrim. Psalm 23 tells the story of a person who journeys from a place of safety, through shadow, and into abundance. It's first a sheep who travels from green pastures into the valley of death, and then it's a weary traveler whose destination is the house of the Lord, the temple. So this is a great psalm to take up and to pray during Lent because it teaches us how to pray not just at the beginning of the journey and not just at the end of it, but in the middle. And I think what most blessed me as I meditated on this psalm this week is how it reframes the middle itself, 
the wilderness as a place not just to survive, not just to get through, but as a place to meet God and receive his blessing. Psalm 23 teaches us how to pray in the wilderness and, I would say, how to rejoice in it. This is what we're invited to do on this Letere Sunday. So let me orient you to this psalm just a little bit more, and then we'll talk about what it means to pray it and to live it. Psalm 23 is a psalm of David, which means his is the first voice that we can imagine praying these words. Now, David's story largely follows the pilgrimage pattern that I just described, which Old Testament theologian Douglas Green articulates as having three phases. Good, bad, better. David's life begins in obscurity, but also in peace as a shepherd boy tending his father's flocks in the Judean countryside. It's a small life, but it's a good one. And then after he's anointed as king, he spends a number of years fighting for his life, not only against Israel's enemies, but against his mentor, Saul, and eventually his own son, Absalom. Many scholars believe that this turmoil within David's own family is what inspired him to write verse 4 when he describes this journey through a valley of deep darkness and the shadow of death. But we know that through it all, God was with David and God vindicated him. God sustained him with the bread of the presence in the temple when he was fleeing from Saul, and he preserved his covenant with David's family even through Absalom's betrayal. David's story went from good to bad to better. And for David, whose kingship preceded the actual physical temple in Israel, this psalm ends as a prophecy. In verse 6, he prays, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We know that David wanted to build this house, the temple, the house of the Lord, but that God did not permit him. So David's prayer ends with something more like hope than fulfillment. But the second voice that we should hear praying these words is David's promised, prophesied heir, Jesus. Jesus is our shepherd king who was anointed by God. That's what Messiah means. It means anointed one. Jesus was anointed to lead God's people. And he also journeyed through the valley of death as he gave himself to the cross. And now Jesus has been raised from the valley and is seated at the right hand of God in a temple not made with human hands, but in the very throne room of heaven, where he will dwell forever in God's presence. And of course, the good news for us is that by faith, Jesus takes us with him on that journey so that we also can be in God's presence forever. This is the hope we have in death as Christians, which is one reason why I think Psalm 23 has become such a popular funeral text. But this is also the hope that we have for the new creation that's coming, when we will dwell with God in a renewed earth. This is the good, bad, better of the gospel. In Jesus, the human story ends better than it began. But for today, and for praying this psalm during Lent, I want to just back up a little bit and think more about what it meant for Jesus to have lived this prayer in real time before he was vindicated and raised and seated at the right hand of God. Let's go back to the middle of Jesus' pilgrimage when he prayed this psalm, casting himself not as the shepherd, but as the sheep. That's where we are during Lent, right? We're with Jesus in his wilderness, 
We are apprenticing the leader who let himself be led, the shepherd who is willing to become, for us, the lamb. Think about this. Jesus prayed, the Lord is my shepherd. He feeds me. He makes me rest. He leads me in the right paths, even the path I don't want to walk, the path of death. In other words, Jesus knows what it feels like in our shoes. In his humanity, he knows what it's like to be contingent, creaturely, and dependent. He knows what it's like to feel out of control, to be at the mercy of others or at the mercy of circumstances. He knows what it's like to be hungry and tired and unsure of when or how his needs will be met. Jesus knows what it's like to be vulnerable in the wilderness because he was. Just like us, Jesus was threatened by evil and darkness, and he was tempted to run away from a hard calling in the midst of it. Friends, this means whatever you are walking through or sitting with in this season, Jesus understands that. You do not have a high priest, Hebrews 4 says, who is unable to sympathize with you in your weakness, but who is tempted in every way just as you are. Yet, as the author of Hebrews goes on, yet Jesus was without sin. In his wilderness season, Jesus remained faithful. He followed his shepherd even unto death and ultimately into the resurrection life on the other side of it. And because he went first, we have a path to follow. Jesus, the chief sheep, shows us that the Father will be faithful to everyone who is willing to be led by him, even if he leads you to a place that feels impossible. He will be with you, and he will bring you through that place of impossibility into the abundance of his house forever. And in fact, just as it was true for Jesus, you can expect that in that impossible place, that valley of death, that's precisely where God will prepare you for the abundance to come. When we walk through seasons that break us, we can trust that in God's hand, our brokenness becomes the kind of brokenness that a seed must experience to grow into a plant. He is doing something in you in the middle of your pain that will bear fruit, that will bring life. This is a very biblical image, and uh, Jesus uses it to describe his own journey to the cross. He told his disciples in John 12 that unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In other words, even for Jesus, the only way to the resurrection was through the cross. And he goes on to say in John 12, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. This, of course, is the great paradox of our faith, that the path of death becomes for us the path of life, that we find our lives by losing them. And do you see how this reframes the wilderness as a place to rejoice? Because it's the place where we are transformed into the image of our Lord where the shape of our lives begins to match the shape of the cross. The wilderness is the place where our wounds become a source of healing for others. So I encourage you to give yourself to it. 
Entrust yourself to the shepherd on this journey, even if the route makes absolutely no sense to you. He is with you, and he will not leave you lacking. That's the promise of verse 1, right at the beginning of this bold, hopeful prayer. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So what I want to do now is talk briefly about the how. How do we add our voices to this psalm with David and with Jesus in the middle of our own journeys? So let me offer three things. First, let yourself be led. This might sound redundant by this point, but it's worth emphasizing again because we are so, so bad at this. Let's admit it, we like to be in control. Or at least we like to think that we're in control. But in the wilderness, we come to terms with the fact that control is an illusion. The truth is that sheep are not actually sovereign over their circumstances. We're not sovereign over the behavior of our fellow travelers. We're not even sovereign over our own beating hearts. This can be painful to realize. And if we're honest, it can be a little scary. So sometimes what we do is we then try to negotiate with God about this or at least this is what I do. I say, okay, Lord, I will submit to this trial. I'll go along with it if you tell me why it's happening and how long it will last and what's on the other side of it. I'll be faithful to you through this illness if you promise to heal me. I'll be charitable in this conflict as long as it works out in my favor. Lord, I will go with you through this valley if you let me drive. Do you relate to any of that? But the invitation here is to embrace our sheepliness and to let ourselves be led. To realize that there is someone bigger and smarter than us who sees what we can't and who understands what we don't. And most important of all, he is trustworthy. The shepherd we know gives his life for the sheep. We may not like feeling out of control, but we can trust the one who is leading us. If you're here this morning and you're not much of a churchgoer and all this stuff about, you know, Lent and David and the Psalms is pretty much meaningless to you, if that's you, I just want you to hear one thing. Let God lead you. Let him lead you to the life that he has for you. It won't be easy and it won't always feel good, but he is for you and he knows how to get you exactly where you need to be. Let God lead you. Second, related to this, as you follow the shepherd, trust his provision. Trust God's provision, whether it's the kind you can easily recognize, like green pastures, still waters, we like that, or whether it's the strange comfort of his rod and his staff. Sometimes we get more of one or the other, depending on the season. But the overarching promise of verse 1 remains the same. I shall not want. On every stage of this journey, God will provide what you need. It may not be exactly what you want, but it will be enough to sustain you. And if you train yourself to notice what he is providing instead of what he isn't, you might be surprised at the abundance of his gifts. You might even realize that what God is offering you is better than what you've been asking for. This is what God wants Samuel to see when he says to him in verse 1 of our Old Testament reading. He says, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. 
I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Saul was the king Israel wanted. And he fit the bill, right? He was tall, he was handsome, he was impressive in all the ways that an ancient people thought they needed for a leader. But if you know the story of Saul's reign, you know that he was also vain, insecure, selfish, and proud. Things didn't work out very well with the people's king. So God chose someone else, someone who didn't fit the bill, so much so that God had to remind Samuel, do not look at his appearance or on the height of his stature, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God's provision may not always make sense to you on paper. You might think you need Saul, but God gives you David. You might think you need to work harder, but God makes you lie down. You might think you need to get rid of your enemies, but actually God wants to bless you in their presence. You might think you need a map, but God has given you a shepherd. Friends, let yourself be led and trust God's provision as he leads you. And lastly, on this journey through the wilderness, hold on to his promises. Our psalm is a prayer in the present tense until the very last verse. Verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the prayer of a pilgrim in the middle of a journey. He doesn't know exactly how everything will work out. He's still in the presence of real enemies, but he is sure that God's steadfast love will have the last word. On the journey of redemption, we might live with lots of unanswered questions. We might never understand why certain things happen, like the man born blind in our gospel reading. We can't always explain the why or the how of our particular stories, but we do know that God will be glorified in them. We do know that he will not abandon us in the wilderness to fend for ourselves, that we will not be given over to our enemies, whether those enemies are without or within. Brothers and sisters, the promise of the shepherd is that goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life, and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Paul put it like this in his letter to the Philippians. He said, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Let me just read that again. I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Our journey doesn't end here in the wilderness. It ends in the presence of Christ, who will wipe away every tear, who will erase every stain of sin, and who will restore everything that has been lost to you. That's the abundance for which we are headed. That's the promise that we hold on to. But let me close with this. Even now, as you hold on to this promise in the future tense, even now, the Lord prepares a table for you. The fellowship that we share with him, and by extension with each other, is itself a foretaste of the feast that is coming. It's a prophetic meal that sustains us even as it whets our appetite for the future. So I invite you to come again this morning 
to receive him again and to rejoice in the fact that in the middle of your story, however hurt or bewildered or tired or broken you might feel, he has prepared a table for you. He has filled your cup to overflowing with his life poured out for you. And when you take this bread and drink this cup, you are practicing a kind of defiant joy. Right here, in the presence of our enemies, in the presence of scarcity and sorrow and death, we feast on life. This meal is our proclamation to a world in winter that new life is here, and it is coming, world without end. Amen. Lord, we thank you for giving us your life. We thank you for giving us both the sheep and the shepherd to lead us on this journey into your presence. And we pray that you would give us courage to say yes and to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.